Hello, thank you for joining us. We are here today from the global headquarters of one of the world's best capitalized banks in one of the world's safest countries. And we're gonna talk about rates, recession, and risk, how to invest in volatile markets. And look, we all know it that people around the world are looking at what is going on with interest rates and interest rate volatility. And the first stop in any discussion there is what is going on with the Federal Reserve. And we're gonna discuss that with our crack CIO team. We're also going to talk about uh, recession, which was a key topic discussed last week up at uh, Davos. And uh, then we're gonna talk some about geopolitical risks and how that is impacting markets and how we are seeing that going forward. So to kick it off, let's, uh, let's start with the rates part and we'll go to Paul. Uh, Paul, you know, we saw uh, US consumer prices rose year over year in April. Uh, and uh, they were down only a little bit from March. We're talking up 8.3, 8.5%. Are we at a turning point? Uh, so yes, I think we are pretty clearly actually. Um, the consumer price inflation came down a little bit, as you said, but we also saw declines in the personal consumer expenditure deflator, which is another perhaps slightly broader measure of inflation, and the core personal consumer expenditure deflator, which is an area where the Fed focuses its attention. Again, we got a decline there. And actually, this has been quite long expected because if you think about it, when we look at a year-over-year -year inflation rate, what we're measuring is the change in prices over the course of a year. And so that tells us as much about prices last year as it does about prices this year. So back in March, the comparison was normal economy to lockdown economy. By April, it's normal economy to gradually reopening economy. And then May, June, we're gonna be starting to compare normal economy to normal economy. And of course the change from normal to normal is gonna be less than the change from lockdown to normal. So I think we have hit the peak. Inflation is likely to come down gradually over the next few months in the States. And then towards the end of this year, we'll see a sharper decline in the year over year inflation rate that's gonna be reflecting changing consumer spending habits, uh, but also this, this base effect that we're more likely to be comparing normal prices to normal prices. All right, when you start talking about rates of change over time, it starts to sound like calculus, which is not something a stock jock like me really uses to do analysis that often. So I'm gonna, I, I think you did an excellent job of explaining, explaining it and, uh, but it, it, it can be a tough subject, and it certainly was the first time I had to learn it. Um, now, the second point here is we've seen the 10-year yield fall uh, from its peak over 3%. And many people think the reason it fell is because of concerns over growth and the Fed talking about a softish landing. Do you think that uh, you know, the Fed is going to achieve that softish landing or what are the chances of that and, uh, you know, the impact that that's had on, on the tenure? 
so I think, yes, the Fed can achieve a, a more or less soft landing. Um, we've got uh, uh, this extraordinary position post-pandemic. I mean, it's, you know, it's still very hard to consider the US or indeed any part of the global economy to be operating normally. So in the States, we've had a bit of a split. Lower income households uh, have, have spent the savings that they accumulated during the pandemic. That, that's gone. And that's why demand has been moderating in the United States. But that doesn't mean that they're without resources lower income households uh, are earning money. I mean, the jobs market we know is, is relatively good. You know, wages are not sort of roaring ahead, but people have got a job. In fact, you know, that's, that's one of the key things about the nature of the US economy over the last few months. And they also have some spare capacity on credit, which they're now starting to use. So during the pandemic, uh, borrowing levels actually came down. Uh, US households were, were repaying debt. And now they're starting to tap into that credit a little bit just to smooth out the consumer spending. So we're not looking for a, a collapse in consumer spending. We don't have a, a bubbling credit, which is going to burst and push us into some kind of terrible economic downturn. You know, there is that level of support. And higher income households still have some of their savings uh, from the pandemic. It's the low income households that have spent it all. High income households do still have some of their savings. And again, we've seen the savings rate coming down as those higher income households are using their savings to, again, smooth out the consumer spending pattern. So, yes, absolutely, growth is going to be slowing, but we're not in, a, in anything like a disaster scenario. There's reasonably good foundations to the consumer at this stage and it was inevitable that growth was going to slow after last year. Last year was a once in 75 year experience for consumer demand and we've never seen anything like this since the, the, the immediate post-war period. So it was obviously going to be slowing down this year and we shouldn't get too worked up about the fact that it's doing what was expected. Well, you're, you can, it's easier to say, don't get too worked up about what had to be inevitably slowing growth than to actually do it because, you know, it doesn't, it's bumpy. And it doesn't feel good when when the growth is slowing. It's not something that uh, many, many people uh, have experience, have that much experience with. And of course, it means that every data point that comes in, uh, you know, you put two, three bounce around data points together and all of a sudden it feels like we're slipping again and this is contributing to market volatility. Uh, but, you know, certainly the base case you laid out and, and the cushions that uh, the, the Fed has and the consumer has, um, you know, makes the case that there can be this softish landing. But how do, how do you think about the risks around the base case and how, how do we separate a little bit behind, between kind of lumpy base case and this is getting worse than expected. Well, you're quite right about the data, of course, Mark, that, that we are seeing just lower quality data in the sense that it's, it's a bit less reliable than it used to be. There's a lot of revisions to data and it can be quite difficult to have a really clear picture in real time of what's going on if you're just looking at, at sort of the main economic indicators, which is why we spend a lot of time looking at a very broad range of indicators to try and get a sense of you know, what's really happening uh, in the economy with the data being revised as much as it is. 
Um, if I'm looking at the risks, there are, there are two things that I'm focused on. And frankly, I think two things that the Fed and other central banks are focused on, which is sort of the second round effects of what we're seeing at the moment. If we were to see um, a wage cost price spiral emerging, which is where prices go up so people demand higher wages which increases costs which pushes up wages uh, which pushes up prices again the, the the classic sort of 1970s spiral that's something that central banks would take very very negatively and they would move very quickly to to damp that down and that would been a, a more aggressive policy response. Now, we are not seeing this at the moment. We don't have this you know, wage cost price spiral uh, emerging. Uh, real wages are actually very, very subdued. Uh, we're not seeing those pressures emerge. If they did emerge, that would be the one risk. The second risk is on the demand side, that as consumers are having to pay more for, for gasoline, for diesel, for electricity, etc. Um, obviously, they've got less money to spend elsewhere. And as I've said, they're smoothing that out by digging into savings, perhaps using a bit of credit and taking some comfort from the fact that the labour market is still pretty good. But if we were to start to see uh, demand slowing and that then leading to a slowdown or a significant softening of the labor market, that would raise a few more concerns about growth and about the nature of the landing. Now, again, I don't think companies are going to be in any rush to shed labor because it, it was quite difficult to hire labor after the pandemic. And I think companies are taking a far more cautious approach to their staffing levels. But were we to see a softening of the labor market, that obviously would damage one of the cushions that I've been talking about, and that would be the second key risk. I'm not seeing these risks at the moment. Obviously, they're not part of our base case, but it's something that we continue to monitor just to check that these risks are not emerging, because that would perhaps give uh, a somewhat riskier outlook to the economic growth story. Yeah, so I think you're you're right. We're, we've got to watch every data point and assess it on its own, because the Fed has told us that's what they're doing, and every meeting remains live. Uh, well, thank you, Paul. And now we're going to move on to Dirk, and he's going to go through some of these risks, you know, starting with the, the investment risks. And, uh, you know, there's so many risks out there. And uh, at Davos last week, they were clearly highlighted. And yet, you know, the market uh, didn't listen and it turned around. We had seven up days. Uh, and so, but to get a little more sustained sentiment turnaround that we feel in the market, you know, what are the factors we need to see, Dirk? Set the framework before we dive in. Yeah, absolutely, Mark. So happy to do. So I think, uh, so what are the key concerns right now for investors? So it's clearly um, potential changes in interest rates. It's about the risk of economic recession, as just discussed as well. It's about the risk of um, geopolitical conflicts around the globe, and it's about the lockdown situation in China. So we have, a, we have to have a view on all of these topics to, to, to come up with an overall macro picture and to make our investment decision. I think these four points are actually um, what keeps um, investors nervous right uh, right now, and what, which also keeps me awake at night. So I think um, there's quite high uncertainty around those um, three R's, as we uh, used to call them. Um, it really pays off for investors to um, build scenarios around those topics, I think, uh, to be, be 
prepared for different potential future outcomes, something we've been doing for a while within the CIO uh, in recent months and, and years. And from an, from an investment risk angle, I would actually add that um, uh, this should also include downside as well as upside scenarios because missing out opportunities can be a risk to investors as much as drawdowns are a risk to investors. But maybe I start with rates because um, Paul was also elaborating on this um, previously. On the first uh, slide, so why, 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 is, why is this important actually for global investors? Um, so rates are an important discount factor of future cash flows in most equity valuation models. And what you see here on this slide is the, the forward PE for equities plotted against the 10-year uh, real interest rate. And please note that the real interest rate scale is inverted here. So when we have seen a rise in real interest rates, something we have seen in last um, couple of weeks and months, um, the PE obviously declines as well. So ultimately, higher interest rates, higher real interest rates lead to lower um, stock indices. Um, so what helps to turn sentiment around? So clear signs that inflation has peaked in the US. And as Paul just mentioned, uh, we actually think that inflation in the US has uh, peaked. And then secondly, also greater confidence that the Fed is able to contain inflation without causing a recession. And I think recently we have seen some signs that the market has been gaining confidence that the Fed is able to contain inflation. If we look at um, the 10-year break-even inflation rate, this number has actually come down um, compared to a month ago. So these are promising signs. These are factors we would like to, to, to turn around to, to also cause some more um, positive market sentiment. Just lastly on recession, because you also mentioned this. Uh, why is this important for investors? So, well, historically, um, a weak macro backdrop has, has always um, coincided um, um, with lower earnings and also um, with uh, lower share prices. And typically, share prices have reacted six to 12 months ahead of a recession. If we take a quick look at the next um, slide, this shows what markets are concerned about right now. So, there's a divergence between real GDP and CPI. And the market is clearly getting concerned about this gap being, um, uh, being, being wider going forward. And we end up in a so-called stagflation scenario. Again, this is not our base case. We actually think that inflation has peaked in the US, especially um, uh, maybe not so much in the Eurozone, but in the US and that we are seeing positive global growth numbers this year. So all in all, that should actually um, uh, lead to positive um, corporate earnings. And also, uh, we think that will lead to um, positive returns for broader equity markets by end of this year. Back to you, Mark. All right. Well, we can't talk about risk and not talk about the war in Ukraine and, and what the implications are, both, I think, short term, but also maybe a little bit on the longer term what, what are you thinking yeah absolutely um so there are indeed i think sh short-term and long-term investment consequences um out of the current um war in the ukraine there's probably much to say about this but let me try to keep it as short as possible and let me start with a short-term outlook first i think it's very fair to say that the situation 
um, especially also the conflict between Russia and NATO states, has the potential to further contribute to higher volatility um, in the month ahead. Um, we, when we look at um, latest volatility numbers, the so-called VIX index, this still shows um, elevated level of volatility uh, for global equity markets. So this is likely to continue going forward. Secondly, what are actually the main transmission channels to markets? So a few months back, we identified commodity markets and commodity prices as a main transmission channel. And let's take a look at this um, slide right now. This shows, so the, the first figure here actually shows quite well the dependence on Russia as a commodity producer. So Russia is a producer of palladium, of gas and oil to some important extent. This explains why energy prices have actually risen quite a bit in recent months, which was um, supportive for our view that um, energy stocks should actually perform well, something we have recommended in a portfolio context um, a while now. Thirdly, um, if we take a look at the next slide, another important transmission channel and something which is often forgotten, second figure, um, this shows the the increase in food prices we have seen so far. So basically wheat prices have doubled over the last one or two years. That's important for emerging markets in particular because a large part of their CPI basket actually depends on food and food is very, uh, food imports are very important for emerging market. And we think that businesses and governments will invest more in food security going forward. Um, Long-term, um, just briefly, um, the current conflict obviously adds to the trend of deglobalization, de in my view, which has actually <clears throat> started uh, a couple of years ago when we have experienced a trade conflict um, between the US and China. And on figure three, you see um, the global trade volume as a percentage of real GDP. And uh, this has leveled off a couple of years ago. So we have probably seen peak globalization um, a few years back. Um, and with the current international mistrust, I would argue that um, businesses rethink global supply chain strategies. And I also think that more production will be shifted um, to domestic um, um, companies, for example. And that in turn should also boost spending on robotics and automation. Just briefly, two other long-term consequences, decarbonization will take on greater significance as countries aim to reduce um, fossil fuel dependence and also defense spending obviously will also be a key theme in the aftermath of the of the war and i would expect greater focus on security more generally and also including cyber and food um, security back to you okay and then i think the final topic uh in this part of our program is around china and the zero COVID policies you know i read this morning uh president biden was among the many accomplishments that he highlighted about his administration so far. One of them was that he believed that uh, for the first time since 1975, the US economy would grow faster than the Chinese economy this year. So there's clearly some, in, some issues around uh, what zero COVID is doing to China's GDP, but uh, what about the, the impact going forward on the world? 
Yeah, I think there's actually a decent chance that the US economy will grow uh, faster than the Chinese economy. But uh, let me take a step back. So what would actually um, um, cause China to ease um, restrictions with respect to COVID? Um, I think, first of all, uh, we need to see either um, a decline in new case numbers. Uh, and, and secondly, we would need to see um, China um, government to adjust its zero COVID policy. Just briefly on new case numbers, actually, um, uh, recently in the last one or two weeks, new, new, new confirmed numbers have actually trended downwards. So that's a good news. And also the number of mid to high risk areas, as China calls it, has declined substantially in the last one or two weeks. So these are uh, um, early positive signs, but clearly too early to give the all clear. Remember that a large part of the population, especially the elderly population in China, is still unvaccinated. So rising COVID numbers uh, can be a burden for the health system quite easily. Um, which is actually one reason why China still sticks to so-called um, zero COVID policy and will likely continue to do so in the weeks and months ahead, uh, at least up until the National Party Congress later this year, I personally think. So rolling mini lockdowns and citywide lockdowns as we have seen in Shanghai will likely uh, continue. Uh, in recent days, to give this a bit more positive tilt, uh, in recent uh, days, actually Shanghai uh, has, has broadened its reopening efforts and also announced a stimulus package uh, on top. So these are, again, positive signs and, and likely um, triggers um, which will um, turn around sentiment going forward. Uh, here on this slide, um, you see the importance of China GDP in a global context. Um, um, China GDP has suffered in the first quarter of this year. You see the recent uh, decline. And you also, to what extent global GDP actually moves in sync with China um, GDP. So this is why um, what happens in China is important for global investors as well. And then the second reason why this is important for global investors is actually the impact of these lockdowns on supply chains. Um, and, and the recent round of lockdowns has actually raised concerns about global supply chain disruption, especially given that Shanghai is a key manufacturing hub for automobiles and electronic equipment. Um, and as a, as a matter of fact, latest development have prompted some multinational companies to relocate parts of production facilities from China to other countries uh, already. Again, positive tilt here. If you take a look at the second chart of this slide here, um, you see that actually port waiting times are still elevated, but came down recently. So this is positive for global supply chain if port waiting signs are coming down. And these are the indicators and also kind of high frequency indicators we look at at the moment. And in any case, I think China supply chain dominance is likely to stay intact in the, in the, in the long run. Back to you, Mark. Okay, thanks, Dirk. And it sounds like, uh, you know, if these reopenings in the large cities continued, that would also uh, require more energy and commodities use uh, globally. Uh, but let's let's turn now. That This is going to conclude the public uh, section of our live stream, and we thank you for joining us. And now we're going to move to the more concrete steps that investors can take to protect their portfolios and uh, also grow their wealth. So I wish the rest of you a great day.
UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the global wealth management business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.